If you have your Bibles, um, take them and turn to, to Judges chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Josh for this opportunity. Um, and Noah, thank you for that, uh, picking that song there at the end, um, which segues perfectly into what we're talking about today. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take our hearts, Lord, and seal it for thy courts above is our prayer today. When I was in Iraq, I spent part of my time deployed along the Iraqi-Iranian border. And while on mission with special forces, we would patrol the border looking for weapon smugglers and visiting the many border forts that stood between Iraq and Iran. And every Iraqi border fort had an Iranian border fort across from it at some distance on the other side of the border. But what I did not know at the time was that between the two borders lay hundreds and thousands of buried landmines. Landmines. I mean, despite the fact that the war between Iraq and Iran had ended some 20 years earlier when I was there, still there was this potential for destruction. In essence, that's what we see happening in our text this morning with Gideon. The war's over, but that is often when the real battle begins. Even though Midian was defeated, problems began to surface in peacetime. Now, you and I live in a place, in a time, where all things seem relatively quiet and peaceful for the most part, at least here where we're at. Yet there is a greater potential for danger if we're not careful. For it is not enough for God's people to begin well. We must finish strong. That's the main idea of our text this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in relative peace and prosperity around your word to be encouraged, admonished, and rebuked. Help us by your good grace and not by our own effort to finish the race that you have set before us, that you might receive all praise, honor, and glory. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Now, to give you some context, when God had found Gideon, he saw him for who Gideon would be rather than for who he was. Because despite the fact that Gideon was hiding from his enemies in a wine press so that he might secretly beat out the wheat that he needed for sustenance, God called him a mighty man of valor. God saw him for who he would make him. In order to prepare Gideon for what God had for him, God had him tear down his father's hometown idol to Baal in Judges chapter 6 before he would raise him up to be the deliverer of Israel in Judges chapter seven. Now, if you recall the story in Judges seven, God had thinned the army down from 22,000 men to 300 men so that Israel would know that there is a God in Israel who gives victory over their enemy. And God did. Midian was overwhelmingly defeated. We know these stories from Judges chapter six and seven, but do we know what happened in the aftermath of God's great work. Unfortunately, Gideon's success in battle is not followed by success in peacetime. 
The historian John Keegan, in his book, The Mask of Command, makes a similar observation regarding Alexander the Great when he says, the life of the camp corrupts less than that of the court. Battle tests the real worth of a man as politics never can. While there's little to no time for folly in war, there's plenty of it in times of peace. Now, if that's true, then Gideon's real test begins in Judges chapter eight. And that test begins with Gideon's disregard for the word of the Lord when God had said to him, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. God had told him to go and to defeat the Midianites and almost without fail, Gideon does this. Except that he leaves the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, alive. Rather than put them to death immediately, solidifying their defeat, he takes the opportunity to exact vengeance upon some of his own people for their failure to help him in Midian's defeat. You see, when Gideon had asked for some help from his own people, inquiring if the men of Sukkoth and Penuel could supply him with bread for his 300 men, they refused him. And so Gideon takes these 77 elders of Sukkoth and he beats them within an inch of their life. He then breaks down the tower of Penuel and kills the men of that city. In effect, he disregards his orders from the Lord. Instead of solely defeating Midian, he stalls that defeat in exacting revenge on his own people of Israel. And when he finally kills the two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, he takes the large crescent ornaments upon the necks of their camels for himself, the spoils of war, if you will. And Israel is at peace once again, or are they? Unfortunately, we're only at the beginning of Gideon's downward spiral, his decline and his fall into sin and self-aggrandizement, which brings us to our text this morning. While arguably Gideon did not begin all that well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he had a terrific second act, but he fails to finish strong. We will look at four steps this morning in Gideon's downward spiral, which I believe may serve as a case study for the trajectory of many who fail to finish strong. The first thing we see is Gideon's false humility in verses 22 and 23 which leads to Gideon's false belief in 24 through 28, which then leads to Gideon's false behavior in verses 29 through 31, which leaves us with Gideon's false legacy in verses 32 through 35. So let's look at verses 22 and 23 and see Gideon's false humility. For all that Gideon had accomplished by the power of God, the men of Israel asked Gideon to rule over them. They say, you, your son and your grandson also. But Gideon in this gracious show of false humility refuses them saying, I will not and neither will my son, but the Lord will rule over you. Now, if that was all he had said and and the story ended here, we could rejoice and be glad. But his actions are going to go on to speak louder than his words in the coming verses. You see, Gideon in fact here is displaying false humility. And sometimes false humility cannot be discerned until after the fact. Unless, of course, you uh, have a discerning wife like mine who can spot my false humility a mile away and call me on it before it does any real damage. I hope all of you have someone like that in your life. 
Despite the fact that Gideon refuses to rule over them, the coming verses will show that Gideon really does think of himself as ruling over them. Now, false humility can be defined as a display of humility without really feeling a reason to be humble. In fact, it's mass pride. An article from Psych Mechanics posits that there are at least five reasons for faking humility. Number one, to avoid offending others. For instance, one might say that the promotion they just received was, ah, no big deal. When in fact, they actually believe that it really was a big deal. I mean, it seems like a noble enough reason, but it's still a false display. Number two, to display pride indirectly. For instance, one might post a photo on social media with the unexpressed intent of bragging about how handsome he is or how pretty she is, but they're gonna distract you with some side point like just going to dinner with my friend, right? When in fact, in their heart, they posted it so that you would notice just how nice they looked and leave a comment. Thirdly, to reduce competition. For instance, one might show their competitor that they're really not all that competent, they're really not all that clever, saying, ah, it was a fluke, I I didn't even study for that exam that they had just aced, lulling the competition into a false sense of security. Fourth, one might fake humility to manipulate others. For instance, one might play helpless so that they can get you to do something for them when you know they can actually do it for themselves. It would be better if they just asked for help directly or do it themselves. And fifthly, we might display false humility to fish for compliments. For instance, one might say, and I've never been guilty of this one, that the ribs they just smoked, just a little tough on the dry side, not my best work, when they know otherwise. They know it's the best ribs they had ever made. But they say otherwise because they want you to praise them. They add this little inject just to assure that you get the compliment that you want. It would have been better for Gideon to just have been honest or at the very least transparent. Had Gideon been transparent and just accepted their assessment of him, perhaps his people may have more easily detected his self-aggrandizement and maybe even retracted their offer. Maybe they would have been more easily able to see that he wasn't equal to the task that they had put before him. Now, had Gideon been honest, he might have said something to the effect of, my friends, my my heart's conflicted. The natural man in, in me wants all the praise and the honor and the credit that you're willing to give me, but I should truly give all glory to God for this delivery. I remember where I came from. I was hiding. I was afraid. I was nothing. And God found me. And he raised me up to do his will. Left to my own devices, I'd still be beating wheat in the wine press. And we'd still be in bondage to Midian. God, help me in this temptation to put aside this offer to placate my pride and and, and let me give you glory, honor, and praise. Unfortunately, he just doesn't do that. In verses 22 through 23, we see Gideon's false humility, which leads to Gideon's false belief in verses 24 through 28. He tells them that he won't rule over them, but then he asks them for all of their earrings, all of their spoils of war. And by asking for these spoils of war, do you know what Gideon is doing in essence? See, he's telling the Israelites that he's not gonna rule over them in a literal sense. But at the same time, he asks for a symbolic gesture of submission. And they willingly give it. In all, it says they gave 1,700 shekels of gold, which amounts to 43 pounds. In today's estimate, the equivalent of 1,100,000 
$130,000. It's a lot of gold. I mean, that's treasure fit for a small king. Now, if that were not enough, you'll recall that he has the crescent ornaments already from the camels, as well as the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. So he's saying one thing, and he's doing another. I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to look like a king, right? And he takes all of these things, and with them he crafts an ephod that is a priestly breastplate, something that the priest would wear, something that the high priest uh, wore in the tabernacle, as we see in Exodus 28, and he sets up this ephod in his hometown, and what does the people do with it? It says in verse 27 that they hoard after it. In other words, they cheated on God with this idolatrous object, committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. It became a symbol of victory that they worshipped. It became, it says, a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon comes full circle. God found him as the son of an idolater, In chapter six, he raised him up. He clothed him in his spirit. He caused him to deliver Israel only for Gideon to return to the idolatry that he was raised in. In a way, you can take the boy out of Baal, but you cannot take Baal out of the boy, at least in this case. And what thanks does God get for all of this? Not worship, not gratitude, not credit, Gideon takes all of that for himself by creating an object of false worship. He takes what rightly belongs to God. He uses his God-given victory to advance his own glory. And yet despite this, Midian was subdued. God was good. God was merciful. God kept his promise by giving the land rest, it says, and peace for 40 years despite the fact that Gideon stole God's glory by instituting this focal point of false worship. Praise be to God that he's faithful even when we're not. Now let me say this. Would it be an overstatement to say that all unchecked, unrepented false humility leads to false belief? Would it be an overstatement to say that if I'm not humble, eventually I am going to believe things that are wrong? I believe that if we fail to check false humility, we will undoubtedly eventually find ourselves in false belief because we're believing wrong things about ourselves. Now, how far we go in our falsity may vary, but pride does come before a fall. Now, it's not by accident that right after Paul gets done exhorting us in Romans 12 too, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that Paul goes on to say in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself as more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Did Gideon think of himself more highly than he ought to think? You better believe he did. His behavior indicates glorification of Gideon, not God. And yet God blesses his people. The least God's people can do in response is to show gratitude by advancing God's glory, by giving God the credit that God is due. It's kind of ironic, interesting how focused 
I think we can be on God in prayer when we're in the midst of trial. But what happens after the trial is passed? When good resolution comes, will we steal God's glory for ourselves? Will we take credit as if somehow we made it through the trial on our own without assistance? Will we use the peaceful and the prosperous times to follow our own sinful desires? There's a lesson in this for us, I, I believe, that our continuance in peace and prosperity may not always be a result of our continued obedience. It may just be a complete mercy from God that we're experiencing. There are many quote-unquote Christians who start well but end poorly. We see that later in Israel's history when the Lord will save his people in Hosea 4.7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me and I will change their glory into shame. And that's what's happening here. Oh God, I preserve us through success. But if you will not preserve us through success, then perhaps we might say with fear and trepidation, then preserve us from success. If you won't preserve us through success, then preserve us from success. There's a proverb, 30, uh, Proverbs 30 uh, verses eight and nine, which says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. As the proverb warns, through the fullness that comes with riches, Gideon, in effect, denies the Lord his God. May this never happen to us. Gideon's false humility in verses 22 and 23 leads to Gideon's false belief in verses 24 through 28, which in turn leads to Gideon's false behavior in verses 29 through 31. Because false or corrupt behavior always follows from corrupt thinking. He goes from whoring after another God to whoring after a woman, not his wife. It says he lived in his house, had 77 sons from multiple wives, and he even had a concubine. That is, a woman whom he either lived with or took care of and visited but didn't marry. And the concubine's purpose, as is always the case, is to gratify the sexual desires of the man that she's with. And the fact that that she's from the town of Shechem, some 25 miles away, may suggest that she is, in fact, a Canaanite woman. That is, she's not a woman of Israel. She's not of, uh, she's forbidden. She's off, she's off limits. So not only does Gideon take on a form of Canaanite religion in his false worship, but he may have, in fact, gratified himself with a Canaanite woman. He's become a man of the world in the worst sense. And it says that she bears him a son, an illegitimate son, mind you, and Gideon, it says, Gideon names him Abimelech. Do you know what that name means? The name Abimelech comes from two Hebrew words, Abba, meaning father, and Melech, meaning king. So Abimelech means my father is king. <coughs> Despite the fact that Gideon in his false humility says that he would not rule over his people, he takes a king's ransom of the loot. He sets up his own idolatrous worship venue and then in consolidating his power, calls his son, my father is king. He's usurped God's authority in more ways than one. His false behavior followed his false belief which followed his false humility. There's been a mix of emotions over the last several years regarding the many celebrity pastors and other 
Christian leaders who have fallen from grace. There's been anger, sadness, disgust, disappointment, hurt, and and even a sinful, I could have told you so, smug satisfaction at times. God forgive us for the latter. Names like Mark Driscoll, Tullian Tavijan, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Joshua Harris, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, and I could go on. Perhaps you've experienced the tragedy of seeing theological and behavioral drift in your own church experience over the years. Now the reasons they fell and how far they fell varied from some continuing in ministry to some continuing their ministry elsewhere to others leaving the faith altogether. But the consistent theme of not finishing strong, at least according to the Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Decline of Mars Hill, which chronicles the ministry of Mark Driscoll, is that charisma outpaced character. Charisma outpaced character. When our character, and I say our character because this is not just a celebrity pastor problem, when our character does not align with the gifts that God has given, trouble is sure to follow. Jesus says in Matthew seven sixteen, you will recognize them, that is false prophets, by their fruits. So let me ask you this, does your character align with the gifts that God has given you? Do you justify sin in your life? by towing the line in the toleration of your own worldliness, hiding under a thin veil of I've just gotta be me, authenticity, right? Which is the value of our age. I've gotta be me. Or I've gotta be approachable to unbelievers. I've gotta do this for other people, so I'm gonna tolerate sin in my life. Conversely, is there pride in being set apart from other believers with an attitude of I'm better than my brothers and sisters? The call to follow God, to follow Christ, is a call to die to self. I mean, sometimes we justify poor character and lack of fruit. But sometimes we justify poor character because of the fruit. Look at the fruit they're bearing. Look at the fruit they're bearing. People are coming to Christ. And so we tolerate these character deficiencies. We tolerate inconsistencies. One of Mark Driscoll's good friends said to him, forgive me for choosing peace over honesty. I should have said something to you earlier. He was looking at all the fruit of their ministry, all these people coming to Christ, and thought, surely, I'll just keep quiet. It's okay. Perhaps there was some there with Gideon who made similar justification for his behavior in chapter eight because of the success that he led them to in chapter seven. I mean, certainly God was with him in chapter seven, they must be thinking. I mean, what took place was a miraculous work of the Lord, no doubt. But let's be clear that it was God's work in chapter seven. It wasn't Gideon's. So there's no obligation to tolerate patterns of ungodliness in God's servants. The most important thing that we can do is to be like Christ, not to gather fame, fortune, and followers or tolerate those who do. Let us never lose sight of the fact that anything good that comes, comes by the grace of God, not by our efforts, not by our charisma, not by our gifts, and so we have no right to boast. Gideon's false humility in verses 22 and 23 leads to Gideon's false belief in verses 24 through 28, which in turn leads to Gideon's false behavior in verses 29 through 31, which leaves us with Gideon's false legacy.
in verses 32 through 35. He died in a good old age there in his hometown of Ophrah, and as soon as he did, it says in verse 33, that the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. You see, in a way, the worship of the ephod was only a step away from the worship of Baal. I want you to notice how incrementally the slide towards sin and idolatry happens. It doesn't happen all at once. We tend to drift into sin. If it takes, let's say, 30 steps for me to get to egregious sin, where I defame the name of the Lord my God, if it takes 30 steps to get there, what am I tolerating in between? Who hasn't interceded on my behalf and said, brother, stop. You're going away that you don't want to go. We tolerate small things, which in turn leads to big things, the, the snowball effect, as they say. After Gideon's death, it was just easy for them to make the transition to full-on Baal worship because the ground had already been prepared by the subtle idolatry of Gideon. And it makes sense from a natural standpoint why the slide into idolatry took place. I mean, things were going well. Sure, they might say the Lord, that Yahweh was their God for war, right? All the Canaanites around them had different gods for different things. Yahweh's our God for war, but... Now that we've been through that and that's over, we have no need of him. Baal better suits our carnal, fleshly desires. He's easy to worship because he's just like us. And he doesn't require all that much from us. And that's because he's false. Baal was created by man to reflect man's basest nature. But what they did not know at that time was that those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them, as Psalm 115 will later warn. I mean, in a spiritual sense, because of what Israel had done, they lost their voice. They lost their sight. They lost their ability to listen. In a spiritual sense, they became Baal-like, mute, blind, and dumb. Verses 34 and 35 conclude by saying the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So even though Gideon finished poorly, he did do much good. We must be reminded of that, right? Just because someone didn't end well doesn't mean that God didn't use them. And Gideon is remembered for that. Hebrews 11 even goes so far as to identify him as one who lived by faith. But Gideon's story reminds us, as every story in scripture reminds us, that the hero is God. It's not Gideon. In the end, the rise and fall of the people of Israel under Gideon is the result of a personality-based success story. So long as he was around and he was doing well, the people did well or so they thought. But when he was gone, they turned away. My prayer is that none of us would ever succumb to following a, a purely man-centered movement. Help us, God, to not succumb to this sort of temptation, despite whatever fruit we might see. May our leader's character outpace their charisma. 
at some point or another, Gideon and his people lost sight of their purpose. They were to glorify God. They were to give him praise for what he had done. Instead, they got comfortable and they focused on themselves and the fruits. And over time, they quietly and subtly slipped back into idolatry. They failed to persevere to the end. On the subject of perseverance, U.S. President Calvin Coolidge said, nothing in the world can take the place of perseverance. Talent will not. Nothing in this world is more common than men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Perseverance and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problem of the human race. Now, in the end there, that statement might be a little far-reaching, but there is some truth to what Calvin Coolidge is saying. We must persevere to the end. It's not enough to be educated. It's not enough to be talented. It's not enough to have gobs of charisma. It's not enough to start well. Gideon, to some degree, does start well. No, we must finish strong. And that can only happen by the grace of God. So I ask you this morning, how are you going to finish strong? Because we don't want the end of our story to be what we see at the end of Judges, we must finish strong. Judges' conclusion in chapter 21 sums up the whole book when it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a tragic ending. It's an ending I wouldn't wish on anyone here. I wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. It's an ending packed with death and destruction, evil, and just this continuous slide into carnality that came about as a result of the people being their own individual judges of what was right. Sounds familiar, huh? By the end of Judges, they had forsaken Yahweh almost all together. And yet even when things were at their absolute worst, God was at work. God always preserves his people. God does, did so in the time of the judges. He's doing so even now. His plan continues unabated despite unchecked depravity. You see, it was in the time of the judges that God continued in force the fulfillment of his promise to Eve in the garden to crush the head of Satan through her offspring. The book of Ruth, also written during the time of the judges, tells us the story. Therein we see God establishes the line of a king who will go and point his people back to God. In that story, we see the beginnings of restoration as the line of David is established. And David, that man after God's own heart, restores order and godliness in a time where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But even David is a sinner in need of a savior. In fact, David's salvation, our salvation, will only come later in David's line. For David is not the answer. David is only the ancestor to the answer. David is only the great, 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 not so great, great ad infinitum grandfather of the answer, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. David's descendant, Jesus Christ, would come and be the one to ultimately set all things right. No one else is truly worth following. All will fall short, save for Jesus Christ and all those found hidden in Christ. I'd asked you, how are you going to finish strong? There's only one true answer, 
It's death to self. It's resurrection in Christ, following the one who did finish strong on your behalf. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the downward spiral of Gideon among others, Jesus died for your sins and my sins so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. If you've not received this free gift of God, I would ask you to talk with one of the the pastors after service. If you have received it, then all I can say to you is persevere in it. Persevere so that your life might echo the Apostle Paul's trajectory in Philippians 3.13. But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for each of you here today. Gideon didn't end well, but by the grace of God, will you? Let's pray. God, we realize that left to our own devices, all of us will fall away. It is only by your pursuit of us that we would persevere to the end. It was your work to begin with, Lord, in in bringing about our salvation. And it is you, Lord, who has to bring it to completion. I ask, Lord, for each person here, wherever they're at, whatever they're struggling with right now, perhaps some are struggling with theological drift or behavioral drift, following the course of the world or whatever, I pray, Lord, that by your grace, by your mercy, that you would take hold of them, let them know that you love them, that you've died for them, that we might live and have an abundant life. Accomplish your purpose in us, dear Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen.